Well, it's great to have you all with us on this Easter morning. You can turn to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be all over the New Testament, but that's where we'll start in Acts chapter 5. Well, it was uh, a little bit sad earlier this week to see pictures of Notre Dame burning. It's a beautiful building, incredibly significant historically. So it was awful to see those flames coming up through the roof. I felt really bad about it. And I went home after reading about it in the news and told my wife, and I thought she would really be sad about it because she was an architecture major at A&M. So she likes beautiful architecture more than me. And so I told her about it, but turns out she wasn't sad at all. She just looked at me and she said, it's going to be fine. It turns out she studied a lot of these cathedrals back in school and learned that many of them over time had burned. Some of them had actually been bombed out in the war. And it's, it's really sad to lose all the art and the decor on the inside. But the building itself will be fine because the foundation of those cathedrals is so ridiculously strong. I mean, look at the base of that building the foundation and those massive buttresses they're all made of this incredibly heavy stone that was laid centuries ago it's so strong that even if the inside burns out the building can be rebuilt it will be fine it will take some years but Notre Dame will be fine because the foundation is so strong that got me thinking so what is the foundation of our church and I, and by our church I don't mean this building. Church isn't about buildings. We've talked about that before. In the first century, they didn't even have buildings. They met in people's homes. When I say church, I mean this family. This family of people who follow God, who trust in Jesus. What is our foundation? If you take away all the showy things you saw this morning, the choir and the amazing band and the lights, and you take away the children's ministry, and you take away the youth ministry, and you take away all the programs and all of the paid staff, What is the foundation that our church stands upon? Well, the answer is what you're celebrating today. The resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago is our foundation. This event we're celebrating today is the foundation that our entire religion is built on. Everything that goes into Christianity is built on the event of the resurrection of Jesus. Everything we teach, everything we sing, everything we practice, everything we look forward to in the future, it is built on that foundation of the actual literal resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. The church stands or falls on the truthfulness of that event. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What Paul is saying is that if Jesus did not literally rise from the dead and walk out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, then forgiveness and eternal life are empty promises. There is no peace There is no hope. There is no purpose in life. There is only fleeting pleasures to enjoy while you await an eternity of non-existence. Think of it this way. I assume at some point you have played Jenga. It is fun. If you haven't, you should. So a game, all these blocks, we put them together. The church is a Jenga tower and the resurrection of Jesus is the block on the bottom. If you take that block out, the whole tower falls. 
But here's how the great author John Updike put it. Make no mistake. He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse in his body after death, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Well, let me give it to you as a flow chart because I used to be an engineer and I love flow charts. So let's think about Jesus rising from the dead. Did Jesus actually literally rise from the dead 2,000 years ago? If the answer is no, then all of this is a lie. This entire book is false. Christianity is a fraud and you are all wasting your time. It's a beautiful day. You should be out there playing because that's all you have to hope in in this life. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then it's all true and trustworthy. He did what no one has ever done before. He conquered death. And so you can trust him. You can follow him. You can take his words at face value. You can trust that this book is true, that your life has hope and meaning and significance in a future if he rose from the dead. So when you think about the resurrection of Jesus, the stakes could not be higher. The entire church, our entire religion, our entire life stands or falls on the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important than that event. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to share with you the historical evidence that has led me to believe he actually walked out of that tomb. I'm going to share with you five verifiable historical facts that have persuaded me that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. Now, I'm excited to share it with you. And and part of the reason, last week I preached to you guys about the death of Jesus. And afterwards, a visiting college student came up and talked with me. And she told me that she is agnostic. She doesn't actually believe what we believe about Jesus, but she enjoyed the sermon. It gave her some stuff to think about, and I thanked her for that. But then I pleaded with her, please come back today. Because this, what I'm going to share this morning, is the most important thing I could ever share with you. This is why we believe. That the story of Jesus is true. This is why we believe that there is hope and there is significance in life. I pleaded with her to come back. I wanted her to understand. We don't follow Jesus just because we grew up in church. Or because it makes us feel good. We follow Jesus because of the evidence. I can't overstate How important this evidence for the resurrection has been in my life personally. This is not just an academic exercise. This is not just a sermon to preach because I have to. This evidence for the resurrection is what I cling to when everything else in my life feels like it's falling apart. I've shared before about my ongoing struggle with doubts and with depression. What do I do in the middle of the night when I can't sleep? When I am overcome by doubts and by dark questions, and I wonder, is God even there? Does he exist? Does he care? I wonder, is there any hope? I wonder, what do I do about all the evil in this world? I'm overcome by doubt and despair. When that happens, I return to these five facts. This is what I meditate on. This is what I think about. Because if Jesus actually died and then rose again 2,000 years ago, then everything is going to be okay. In the midst of all the doubts and all the despair, 
and all the things about life that I do not like, it's going to be okay if Jesus walked out of that tomb 2,000 years ago. So I'm excited to share with you this morning these five historically verifiable facts that help us, help me to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. This is our foundation. This is what we as a church are built upon. The actual literal resurrection of Jesus. So let's jump right into these reasons why we believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. Historically verifiable fact number one. We believe he rose because Jesus wasn't the only Messiah. That probably sounds a little bit weird. Let me explain by reading this passage to you. So we turn to Acts chapter 5. Let's pick it up in verse 34. So kind of towards the end of Acts chapter 5. This is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Some of the disciples are brought before the religious council because they're preaching about Jesus. The religious council doesn't like that. The Sanhedrin is mad about this. And so verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men, that is the disciples of Jesus, outside for a short time. And he said to the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, men of Israel, Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, but he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be even found fighting against God. So it may surprise you to learn that there were actually many Jewish men who claimed to be the Messiah in the first century. Jesus wasn't the only one. We know that not only from the Bible, but from ancient Jewish literature. We know that many Jewish men claimed to be the Messiah, and some of them had great success. You see a couple of them mentioned by name here. They gathered followers, and a whole movement started around these men who claimed to be Messiahs, and then what happened? They died, and everyone went home. Their movement died out with them. Why? Because to a first century Jew, the death of a Messiah proved he wasn't the Messiah. Death was proof that he was a fraud. The Jews could not fathom the concept of a Messiah, an anointed king whom God had sent, dying. That didn't make any sense. The disciples shared that belief with them. Look at what Peter says in Matthew 16. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter could not conceive of Jesus being killed because the Messiah couldn't die. The Messiah was God's king. And so when each of these men who claimed to be messiahs, when when they died, that was proof that they were frauds. And so all of their followers went home. No one thought to claim they had risen from the dead. No one built a religion around any of these men. Now, people who are skeptical about Christianity, who don't believe it, 
Many of them have this idea that, that the disciples made up the story about the resurrection and then everyone in the first century believed them because in the first century everyone was just naive. They lived before the era of science. They were conditioned to expect miracles everywhere. So it was no big deal to believe Jesus rose from the dead. That was easy for them to believe. No, that is a naive and insulting view of first century people. They weren't idiots. They knew that when a body dies, it stays dead. In fact, Gentiles, that is everyone who's not a Jew, they laughed at the concept of resurrection. The Jews themselves, they believed resurrection was possible at the end of time. It doesn't happen now. They knew bodies don't rise. So it's not surprising that all of those other Jewish men who claimed to be the Messiah and then died, it's not surprising that everyone gave up on them. What is surprising is that Jesus' disciples didn't give up on him. What is surprising is that when Jesus died, his disciples not only stayed loyal to him, but they made this claim that no one had thought to make before, that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And the claim was so compelling that all of these thousands of people joined with them and the movement grew more after Jesus. How do you explain that? How do you explain that out of all of the messiahs in first century ancient Near East, only this one was claimed to have risen from the dead and built this movement we call Christianity? There had to be something different about him. In my opinion, the easiest explanation is that he actually really did rise from the dead. Second verifiable historical fact that leads me to believe Jesus actually rose from the dead Women were the first witnesses. That one sounds very weird. Let me explain. Turn back to the left a little bit in your Bible to the book of Luke. Look at Luke chapter 23, the end of the chapter. We're going to actually read the resurrection story. So this is the event of Easter, Jesus rising from the dead. We're going to pick it up at the very end of Luke 23 and then read into chapter 24. So Luke 23 verse 55. Now the women who had come with Jesus out of Galilee followed him and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified in the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the mother of James, also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So in all four of the gospel accounts, the first and primary witnesses to the resurrection are women. That's an interesting bit of history. Why does that matter? Well, because in the first century, women were not thought of as reliable witnesses. 
In fact, in Jewish courts of law, women were not allowed to testify. Josephus, not a Christian, he wrote histories of the Jewish people in the first century. He tells us why women were not allowed to testify in court. He says, even testimony of multiple women should be rejected because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Wasn't just Jews who felt this way about women. Here's what the Romans say. Celsus, a second century critic of Christianity, mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as an alleged witness of the resurrection since, like all women, and I'm quoting him, these aren't my words here, she was a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. So let's state the obvious. First century views of women were incredibly bigoted and sexist. Men in power viewed women to be unintelligent and unreliable. The Bible fundamentally disagrees with that. The New Testament is crystal clear. Women are our equals in every way, men. Women are co-heirs of the grace of God. But here's why this historical fact matters to the verifiability of the resurrection. I want you to think for for, for just a second. If you're making up this story, The apostles just made this up. Why would you choose witnesses whom your society assumed were unreliable? Or think about it this way. If I am trying to dupe you into buying into a fraudulent investment, I want to take advantage of you. Am I going to tell you I have an incredible financial opportunity for you? You are guaranteed to make a ton of money. This is so incredible. I heard it straight from the mouth of my nine-year-old. No, nine-year-olds are not thought of as reliable judges of financial opportunity. If I am making this up and trying to take advantage of you, I'm going to quote the Wall Street Journal because maybe you'll listen to them. Same point with the resurrection. If the apostles are making this up, why would they choose to put women as the primary witnesses whom their society did not think of as reliable? That makes no sense. The only reasonable way to explain this story is that it really happened this way. Women really were the first and primary witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Third piece of historical data that leads me to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. The apostles look foolish. The apostles look incredibly foolish in the resurrection accounts and really throughout the gospels. And so what I want you to think about, I want you to ask yourself this. If you were making up a religion... Because you want everybody to think you're cool and to follow you. How would you make yourself out in that religion? How would you tell your part of the story? Probably going to make yourself look pretty good, right? Pretty smart, intelligent, brave. How did the disciples look in this story that they have written? Do they cast themselves in a favorable light? Well, let's look at a few examples. So we read a little while ago from Matthew 16 when Jesus said that he was going to be killed. Peter said, no way, that's not going to happen to you. Here's what Jesus says to Peter. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's Peter who chose to include that story in the gospels. And yet Jesus calls him Satan. Here's another example. On the night Jesus was arrested and and taken before the religious council, we find out what's happening to Peter at the same time that Jesus is at trial. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl, a young girl, comes up to him and says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. 
But Peter denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter comes across as a liar and a coward in this account. Why would he include that if he was making the whole story up? And it doesn't get better after the resurrection. Look again where we were in Luke chapter 24. We left off in verse 10. The women have come and boldly proclaimed that Jesus has risen from the dead. They're telling the disciples this. And look at how the disciples respond. Verse 11. But these words, the women's testimony, appeared to them, to the disciples, as nonsense. And they would not believe them. Then look later in the same chapter, verse 36. While they were telling these things, he, Jesus himself, stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they, his disciples, were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit that is a ghost. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? You read these accounts and what you realize is, the women come about, come off in a very favorable light. The apostles do not. But who wrote the story? The apostles. They're the ones that got to choose what to include in this book you're reading. And so if they made it all up, why would they make it up this way? That doesn't make any sense to make yourself look like a fool and a coward and a liar. The best explanation for the evidence of why the story is as it is, is that it's truth. That the apostles are simply recording what really happened, that the women were brave and they were cowardly. That they were liars, that they didn't believe. That's the story and they wrote it to us accurately, even though it made them look stupid. So that's the third piece of evidence that leads us to believe Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, fourth piece of evidence that leads us to believe the enemies of Christianity never brought out the body. In Acts chapter 4, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity is taking off in Jerusalem. Lots of people are coming to the faith, and, and in particular, it's Peter and John who are these amazing witnesses of Christianity. They're leading thousands of people. Like the church has gone from like 70 when Jesus rose from the dead to 5,000 in Jerusalem. The whole city is, is on fire with Christianity. And that is freaking out the religious leaders. The religious leaders who run Jerusalem, they had crucified Jesus to maintain their grip on power, and now they feel it slipping away. They are truly afraid in Acts chapter 4, and so they ask themselves about Peter and John, what shall we do with these men to silence their teaching? Well, if the disciples made it all up, what is the easy answer to that question? You just go bring out the body. Jesus had been crucified like four weeks before. So his body was still recognizable. And everyone had seen Jesus. Remember, when he was crucified, he was crucified naked at a public intersection of the city. Everyone knew what he looked like. So this is like four or five weeks later. You just go get the body and you parade it through the streets of, of Jerusalem and Christianity is dead in an instant. And yet that's the one thing that they never do. They'll beat Christians. 
They'll imprison Christians. They'll execute Christians. But they never bring out the body. That's how you know that the disciples weren't just having like a shared hallucination. They weren't just smoking something and then having dreams about Jesus. Because the body would have still been there. And their enemies could have just brought him out. How do you explain the fact that the enemies of Christianity never bring out the body? The best explanation is that there was no body to bring out. There was no body in the tomb. It was empty. Actually, what's fascinating is that most non-Christian scholars of history agree with us about that. Most people who studied the history who aren't Christians agree. There must have been no body there because it makes no sense. That the Jewish leaders, who we know from lots of historical data, hated Christianity. It doesn't make sense that they didn't bring out the body. Because it would have still been completely recognizable. So, the tomb was empty. But those who don't believe in Christianity, they have an answer or an explanation ready. Well, it wasn't there because the disciples had stolen the body. And then they made up this whole religion. Well, there's a problem with that view. Problem is, is that all the guys who made it up chose to die for that claim. The apostles chose to suffer and die for their allegiance to Jesus, for their claim that he actually bodily rose from the dead. I'll just give you an overview of of their suffering. Just a few bits. There's lots more in the New Testament than this. Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are flogged, and yet they rejoice. Acts 12, James, one of the disciples, is beheaded. Acts 14, Paul stoned. 16, he's beaten with rods. After 2 Peter, Peter's crucified upside down. After 2 Timothy, Paul is beheaded. You look at the histories and you find out 11 of the 12 disciples were tortured and martyred for their belief in Jesus. The one who got away, John, he was tortured and imprisoned till the end of his life. So he didn't exactly get away. So the question is, why would these men choose to suffer and be imprisoned and executed for a story that they knowingly made up that makes no sense? I mean, I can understand maybe one dude. If one dude made up this whole religion, maybe he was just really crazy. Okay, but 12? All 12 of them give up everything and die in horrible ways. I mean, think about it. If you're Peter... The guy who who wrote a lot of this down and you see the soldiers coming to crucify you upside down for your allegiance to Jesus, but you made it all up. What are you going to do? You're going to fall on your knees and you're going to say, fellas, fellas, there has been a huge misunderstanding. I made up the story because I thought it would make me popular. Clearly it has not worked. I recant of it all. It was all just a false tale. But Peter never does that. All of the writers of this book, they choose to be imprisoned and to suffer and be martyred in horrific ways because they believed in what they claimed. And so the question for you to think about is simply what is the best explanation for the evidence? When you think about the fact that all of these apostles gave their lives for this claim, including Paul. Paul was wealthy. Paul had Roman citizenship. Paul was educated by the best Pharisaic school in the world. He had nothing to gain from Christianity. And yet he gave up all his privileges and chose to suffer and be imprisoned and executed because he said Jesus rose from the dead. Why would they do that? Why would they make up a story and stick with it? In the midst of imprisonment and torture and execution. And so as you look at these five pieces of evidence. Five historically verifiable facts. The question that you have to ask yourself. Is what is the best explanation of this evidence? 
whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. You have to ask yourself that, what is the best explanation? How do you put the pieces together in the most reasonable way? As I look at that evidence, in my opinion, it is more of a stretch to believe that they made it all up than that Jesus actually rose from the dead. In other words, I believe it is more reasonable based on historical evidence to believe that Jesus actually rose physically from the dead than that he didn't. Now, why does that matter? Well, because if Jesus actually rose bodily from the dead 2,000 years ago, then that means I can take him at his word when he says some pretty crazy stuff. Because in the Gospels, before dying and rising from the dead, Jesus made some outrageous promises to you. How do you know they're going to come true? How do you know you can cling to them? Well, because he rose. So let me share with you some of these outrageous promises Jesus made. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Jesus is promising right there that you will be resurrected just like him if you trust in him. You will live forever. You will have eternal life. That is an outrageous claim. Proven true when Jesus walked out of that grave. When he rose from the dead, he was proving that he can keep that promise to you, that you will also rise out of the grave and live forever. Here's another one. Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This world and this life is incredibly dark. There's an incredible amount of suffering and pain in this world. And yet Jesus is promising he is the light. He will lead us into eternal, perfect, infinite light. That's again an outrageous claim. Proven true when he walked out of that grave 2,000 years ago. Here's a final one. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We hunger and we thirst throughout this life. We hunger for love. We hunger for acceptance. We hunger for hope and for significance and for a purpose in life. What Jesus is saying is all of your righteous cravings will be satisfied in the future by him. Again, an outrageous claim proven true when Jesus rose from the dead. And so when you think about the resurrection and how important it is, what I'm trying to help you understand, when we talk about Jesus rising from the dead, that is not just a fairy tale we tell our kids. It's not just a metaphor of spiritual rebirth. It's not just a tradition handed down to us by our forefathers. It's a fact. It's an event that changed everything. It is the most important event in the history of the human race. Because when Jesus died and then rose from the dead, he brought hope and meaning and significance to your life. That fact, that event is what we cling to. It's the foundation that our church is built on. Fires can rage everywhere else. This is what we stand on. This is what we cling to. And so when my life is dark and discouraging and I feel despair in my soul, these are the facts I cling to. I come back to this because I know if this is true, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then everything's going to be okay. Because if he rose, so will I. This morning we're here to celebrate the fact that death did not win. 
2,000 years ago, something happened that has never happened before and never happened since. A man who died lived again and walked out of an empty tomb. And because he did that, we can take him at his word. That like he rose, we will rise. Like he has life, so we will have life. Everything good that you are hoping for will come true because Jesus walked out of that empty tomb. So we're going to give thanks for that. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing and worship Jesus for conquering death on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that 2,000 years ago you rose from the dead. We praise you and we thank you that you were stronger than death. We thank you that you have given us so much evidence to help us to believe. And, and right now, Lord Jesus, we want to pray for anyone here who, who is struggling to believe. Maybe they, they just haven't gotten to that point yet, Jesus, where they believe you actually rose from the dead. We pray, open their eyes, help them to see the evidence. We pray that you would soften their hearts to you, that they would really reach out to you and believe that eternal life is real, that you exist, that you love them. We pray that you would open their eyes to see Jesus, that you rose from the dead so that they can have eternal life as a free gift. We pray that you would help them to see they don't have to work for your love. They don't have to earn it. They can just receive it in faith. We pray, Lord Jesus, help them to believe that you died for their sins in their place and then rose from the dead so that they can have life eternal as a free gift. We pray, Lord Jesus, for all of us who have believed in you. Help us to cling to these truths and help us to give thanks today. In the midst of all the distractions in life, I pray that you would help us to see not only that you rose from the dead, but but that that changes everything, that that puts everything else in perspective. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this morning of all else, we would be so, so grateful that you conquered death on our behalf, that you walked out of that tomb so that we could have life with you and your Father and the Spirit forever. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us a hope that does not disappoint. You have given us a future that is good, and you gave it to us by walking out of that grave. Thank you so much, Jesus, for conquering death. It is in your name and for your glory we pray. Now, if you'll stand, let's give thanks.